turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to cover uh, three verses this morning. I titled this morning's message, God's Love for His Children. I, uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying I've taught this book a number of times through the years, and every time you pick up the Word of God, it's fresh. It should be fresh to us. You know, there should never be anything that you read and go, I've read this before. I've already been through that. But it should always be something fresh to our hearts, and it is for me going through it again. But we've looked at and really have already taken, those of you that are new with us this morning, we've already gone through three tests. We've taken the test of obedience, the test of love, and the test of truth. We found those three tests in the first two chapters of John's letter here. And he's really, what he's doing is he's defining what a Christian is. He's going to, by the time we get to the fifth chapter, it's going to become very evident. It's going to be very clear to us, what is a Christian? What does a Christian act like? What, you know, what, 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 how do we perceive in our minds what a Christian should be? There was a lot of misconceptions in John's day. It didn't take very long for a misconception to, to arise. What is a Christian? You know, and that term, as I've already shared, is loosely used today, and a lot of people don't even like Even some Christians don't like using it. They like using, I'm a follower of Christ, because that's what the name means. Because people are confused over this, what is a Christian? But in our text last week, we took that test of truth. It's one of the earmarks of a Christian, true Christian, that they believe in the truths about Jesus Christ. But we read in chapter 2, verse 18, that the Antichrist is coming. And I, and I believe that we have a future Antichrist according to biblical prophecy that is on the horizon. But John also says, even now many Antichrists, plural, have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. I believe that the early church, as well as the church today, was living in expectancy of Christ's return. I think it's important for us to live that way. And we're going to learn that this morning. In chapter 2, verse 22, John wrote this very direct statement. Who is a liar and antichrist? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, John is not just saying that the person that denies that he is just the Messiah... But those that would even deny that Jesus is God in flesh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is our only hope of salvation, that's characteristic of a true Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross is my only hope of salvation. John also says in verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. 
And so there has always been deception. Deception happens outside of the church, but there is even a type of deception that can happen and come into the church. John wrote in in verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, speaking about these antichrists, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest or it might be made evident that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. He's speaking to you as believers in Christ. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. That anointing from the Holy One, I believe, is speaking of the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells inside of each and every true believer. This antichrist or this deception that's in the world, for a person that knows Christ and dwelt by God's Holy Spirit, you have this anointing or this understanding from the Holy Spirit. When you hear false doctrine, when you hear things that don't line up with the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is the one that helps you in discerning truth and error. It's the Holy Spirit of God that reveals understanding to the Word of God. Even when somebody is teaching the Word of God, it's really the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word, to give you understanding of what you're reading in God's Word. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And He will always lead you into truth. That's why it says we have no need that any man teaches, but we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, from the Holy One. Not that God doesn't use teachers, but it's His Holy Spirit is the ultimate revealer of truth to us. In verse 27 of chapter 2, John says that we have this anointing from God that abides in you. That word abide means that it dwells in you. It dwells inside of you. And that anointing teaches you and it will... in and you will abide in Him. That's a work of God and His Spirit in the life of a Christian. We finished last week in verses 28 and 29, but we're going to start the study this morning by rereading these two verses because I think it goes, it connects chapter 3. So let's read it, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Again, John makes a very clear statement here. He's referring to uh, true believers as little children. You're children of God. And, and, it's, and it's a term of endearment. He's speaking from a heart of a pastor. Remember, Paul or, uh, John was the bishop there in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. He was like a, a pastor of the church there in Ephesus. But he also oversaw the churches that were there in Asia Minor. And so he has this great care for them. 
He wants to see them discipled. He wants to see them protected from the deception that's out there. He wants to clear up the misconceptions of those that are out there saying they're Christians, but their life does not line up with what a Christian is. He says in verse 29, if you know that He is righteous, remember I've been talking about this word know, if you are coming to know that God is righteous, if you, if you know that He is holy and righteous and just, and then you also know that everyone who practices righteousness, or as the old King James puts it, everyone who doeth righteousness is born of God. I think it's a, it's a clear indicator that somebody truly is a child of God when they have a changed life, when they live differently than they used to live. I'm no longer the same person. You see, even this term born again has been confused. It was confusing to Nicodemus in the day, wasn't it? A religious man of the day. He was concern, uh, confused over because Jesus used this term born again with a religious man. And the only thing he could think of in his mind is, well, I've been born once. Why do I need to be born again? People confuse it today by thinking, well, you're one of these born again people. Almost like that's a religion in itself. One of the born agains. You know, and, and they, they, they think of this term. Some people don't even know the term born agains in the Bible. They think Christians made it up. What do you mean born again? I don't need to be born again. I've already been born. It's the same confusion. That it, but see, Jesus wasn't the, a God of confusion. He wasn't trying to bring confusion to Nicodemus. What he was trying to do is get the wheels turning in Nicodemus' mind. He was going to try to show him something spiritual from that term. Nicodemus you need to be born again. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John writes about this. About being born again. I think it's important for us to define that this morning because it's in light of what we're going to cover this morning. We read in chapter 3 verse 1 that there was this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And this man, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, which just means teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was acknowledging he had heard of, maybe even seen some of the miracles, some of the signs that Jesus had done. He knew that he was a good teacher. He knew that there was something about him that set him apart from the rest. But here he is at night coming to Jesus to inquire of him. And we see in verse 3 that Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's where the confusion comes. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus, knowing that this is confusing in his mind, you know, he's able to see really what's going on. Jesus answers him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says you will never see the kingdom of God in verse 3. He says you will never enter in to the kingdom of God in verse 4. Or verse 5, you will never see nor will you ever enter the kingdom of God. Now to me, I would sit up and take notice if that statement was made to me. You'll never see the kingdom of God. You'll never enter into it either, Nicodemus, unless you were born again. Jesus went on to explain to Nicodemus what this being born again meant, what it, what it was. He says, that which is born of the flesh, in verse 6, it's flesh. We're all born physically one time. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so he's making a distinction between the flesh and the spirit. You have flesh, you also have a spirit, and you also have a soul. It's what makes you up as a human being. The reason why we need to have our spirit regenerated, we could take it all the way back to the book of Genesis. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? Remember what God told Adam in the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall what? You shall surely die. We know that Adam didn't die. God didn't strike him down on the spot and kill him the moment he disobeyed. He was cast out of the garden. He went on to have other children, and he died a death later on in life. But what did happen at the moment of sin, at the moment of disobedience, it says that spiritual death came upon Adam and Eve. That spiritual death has been passed on from Adam and Eve to every human being that has followed them. That includes you and I. Every human being is, in a sense, spiritually dead as a result of Adam and Eve. You you look at people walking around the street, they look just as alive as a Christian does. What makes the difference? Spiritually, they're dead. And the only way that a person is, comes into a, a relationship or is able to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to have your dead spirit regenerated by God's Holy Spirit. He takes your dead spirit and makes it alive by His Holy Spirit. He tells Nicodemus, he says, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Don't marvel at what I'm saying to you, Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be. He says, you, you, you see the trees over there? You see how the wind blows through it? And you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind as it's ruffling the, the branches and the trees. So it is with everyone that's born of the Spirit. You see, when I was born again, it didn't knock me off my feet. It wasn't some, you know, but by faith, God, I believe, by His Spirit, came and dwelt within me the moment I believed. And that's the same thing that has happened in you if you're born again. He's telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, just like that wind blows, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
God comes in, lives and dwells inside of you and takes your dead spirit and makes you alive by his Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be born again. Some people think it's turning over a new leaf in life. And that is a really a result of being born again. That's not being born again. That's a result of it. Your life changes. You become this new creation in Christ. We read in the book of Titus in chapter 3, Paul wrote this. It says, For we ourselves were also once foolish. Can you relate? We were disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. He's talking about our B.C. days. But when, here's the good part, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. That's not why I'm going to heaven. But, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us through the washing, and here it is, the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's being born again. He takes your dead spirit and he regenerates it by with his Holy Spirit. And that's what causes us to be born again. If you're born again here this morning, if you're a child of God, I hope you see yourself as a walking miracle. Does God do miracles today? How many of you just recently accepted the Lord? You're a walking miracle. How many of you accepted the Lord 50 years ago? You're a walking miracle. To take a a person like that and make you this new creation in Christ. It's a miracle of God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, he says, but you were not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then he puts this little thing in there. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. He goes on to say, if anyone has not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. In other words, you can't be a believer unless you have Christ's Spirit dwelling inside of you. Unless you're born again. And if that same Spirit that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, if it dwells inside of you, Paul says, He will also give life to your body by His Spirit that dwells in you. He says it three times. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do I have God's Spirit dwelling in me? And if you say yes to that answer, I would ask you the question, how did He get there? How did His Spirit come to dwell in you? At what point did that happen? It's not because you go to church. It's not because you were born in a Christian family. It's none of those things. It's because you came to a place where you called upon Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, and you invited Him to come and live inside of you, and you became born again, a miracle of God. You may not have ever even known that term when you got saved, but that's what happened. God's Spirit came and lived inside of you and made you this new creation in Christ. Now let's look at our text. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 3 is what we're going to cover this morning. Let's read the first three verses together. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, 
because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. John, this pastor, uh, this, this man that wanted to see people discipled, this man that spoke more of in Scripture about truth than any of the other New Testament writers. He was concerned with truth, that we would hold the truth, that we would know the truth, that we would defend the truth, that we would do everything we, we get, you know, because it's the truth of God's Word. That was the heart in which John is writing this letter. Like a pastor, like a father to his children, wanting to see them walk in the truth. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. That should be the heart of every pastor. That they would want to see their, their church, those people in the church, walking according to truth. But he also wanted to strengthen these believers in their confidence. In their confidence in their relationship with him. Remember, I shared with you the key verse, I believe, to this letter. 1 John 5.13. It's a key verse that we can know that we have eternal life. That's why John wrote it. These things I have written to you who believe, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. It's a key verse to this whole letter. John wants, wanted them and he wants us to have that confidence, that assurance of where you're going to go when you die. Don't ever let that be a question mark in your mind. If it is a question mark, and you go, you know what? Um, I hope I would go to heaven. I hope I would. But I can't tell you 100% sure that I would. I, I hope I would. That's, that to me is insufficient. Jesus Christ died on that cross and did everything that was needful for you to have eternal life so that you could have full assurance of knowing where you're going to go when you die. Full assurance. That was what John was wanting to convey in these five chapters of 1 John. So that as believers, when we get to that last chapter in 5.13, we're going, I know that I know that I know. I passed the test. All three of those tests. I'm convinced that I know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Very important for us to be born of God, for us to become a child of God, for us to be referred to in in, in Scripture as children of God, as I already shared, takes something supernatural. It's not saying, Are you a church attender? Do you go to church? Church is what we do because we are saved, not because it saves us. I don't go to church because it's saving me. It's because I want to learn more about the God that saved me. 
But just think about that. To be a child of God. To be children of God. To be called that. By the creator of the heavens and the earth, he calls you a child of God when you're born again. When you've had that second birth. When you've been, as it refers to, as being born from above. Not the physical earthly birth. We all came by way of the birth canal. We're talking about a spiritual rebirth. But in a sense, John, as he enters into this third chapter, is really taking a pause. He's pausing after those three tests that we just took. And this pause was a time really to encourage you and I. We need that at times, don't we? Encouragement. Especially when you see yourself not always living up to what a Christian should be. Okay, to be honest with you, I haven't really been acting and living like a Christian lately. Does that mean you're not? God knows. But, but I, I, I don't always feel it when I'm walking the way I'm walking right now. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> it's probably a good thing that you don't feel that confident. But the Lord wants us to be confident in our salvation. And, and, and John's wanting to encourage us here about God's love towards you. And the fact that you are a child of God. In verse 1, he starts out with this word behold. This word behold, what's interesting for those of you that have been in the past studies here, I talked about the word no. One of those words in Greek is gnosko, which is a, it's a knowing where it's a, a growing knowledge about God or about the things of God. And then there's oida, which is a stronger word. In our English word, we use the same word, no and no. In the Greek, he has a different meaning for this word, gnosko, and oida. And oida is a stronger form of the word no. It's, it's actually divine knowledge that's been imparted to you. Divine knowledge meaning that the Holy Spirit has revealed this particular... <clears throat> excuse me, this particular truth to you, and you know it. You've come to know it. The word behold is in the Greek oida. And so what we're seeing here, even in this first verse, is John uses the word behold or oida to say this to us. He says, see how great what manner of the love, uh, the love of the Father has bestowed upon us. Or in other words, we need to know how great this love is that God has bestowed upon you as a child of God. Do you know how great His love is towards you? Do you feel like you come up short sometimes like this and you're really trying to wrap your head around it and you're kind of going, yeah, I know the Bible says He loves me. But what does that really look like? Because the kind of love that we see in this world and we often even see people express towards others is not the kind of love that God has bestowed upon you. 
It's sacrificial, unconditional love. It's a supernatural love. It's the love that has been poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit the day you gave your life to Christ. It's why you can love people the way Christ loved them that you couldn't do before. This oedo, this word behold, is John saying, I want you to grasp it. I want you to comprehend it. I want to take you deeper in your understanding of the love that God has for you as His child. Why does that affect us? Because I believe that real assurance is established in a good relationship. If you have a good relationship with the living God, and you sense that relationship that you have with Him is is a good relationship, you have strong confidence. You're walking with the Lord. You're serving Him. You're loving Him. You're loving others. You see God working in your life. You know, I'm just, I'm a different person. And I have this strong confidence in my heart that I know Him and He knows me. And that He loves me. And that His love never fails. And that it's unconditional. It's sacrificial towards me. You know what blows my mind? Is that God loves people in this world that don't know Him even those that reject Him, those that say things against Him, that He loves them as much as He loves me, you say, that's not fair. I give my whole life up to follow the Lord. Why should, they, why should the God love them like He loves me? Because it's a supernatural love. It's a love that doesn't require anything given back to Him for Him to love you. God, God doesn't say, if you'll do this for me, I'll love you. That's what we do quite often in marriage. <laughs> you do your part, I'll do my part. You know, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. That's conditional love. Unconditional love requires nothing in return. He simply loves the world, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Pretty incredible. You see, love is an active word. Love is action. You've heard that maybe before. It's not just a verbal, a verbal word. But it's, it's love in action. And we see that, we even see that with God the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. That He had this unconditional love towards His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the Father towards the Son. John 17, 26. And I have declared to them your name. This is Jesus speaking. And will declare it that the love with which you loved me, He's talking about His Father loving Him, may be in them and I in them. And He wanted them, you and I, to experience that same love. As I already shared, God's love towards the human race. For God so loved the world. He's not talking about the globe. He's talking about the people that are in this world. That He loves them. Before you knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Romans 5 eight says, For God demonstrated His love toward you, and while you were yet a sinner, 
Christ died for you. He demonstrated His love towards you. And while you were yet a sinner, not when you were like, you know, hey, I got all together. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a good, you know. No, while you, were, while you were acknowledging that you were a sinner, He loved you. He died for you. God has a great love towards those who don't believe, but He also has a great love towards you who do believe. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves me. And He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him and manifest myself to Him. That relationship, you know when you're obedient to the Lord and you just, you know, I just, I'm not perfect. I will fail. I do fail. I sin. I, I transgress. I do all those things. But you know what? There is inside of me this desire to want to be obedient to God. That has something to do with the love relationship that you can have this way between you and God. There's something within me that just desires to follow whatever He tells me to do, I want to do. That's a good place to be in as a Christian. It's a a good relationship to have that way. How about if you're not? You're just kind of walking, you know, hiding from God, not wanting, you know, you feel like that relationship is waning a little bit. It's not a place that's comfortable to be in. Look at verse 2. John says, and says, Beloved. Now this is the first time that John uses this word beloved in these five chapters. He's going to use it four other times as we go through the letter. But this word uh, beloved is, it actually stems from the word uh, agapeo. So when John is saying beloved to you and I or to, believe, to these believers there, he's saying you are loved, you are agape He says, beloved, now we are children of God. You see how he's saying that? Now we are. Now you are a child of God. The day you gave your life to Christ, you became one. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, speaking about Jesus Christ, we shall see Him, we shall be like Him, and we shall see Him as He is. Wow. Think about that. Wrap your head around that. Of what, what, what that's going to be like the day that you stand face to face with Jesus Christ. That day's coming. I hope that you're convinced of that. Because anything short of that is just living a religious life here on this earth. A Christian that is anticipating that Christ is coming back. Anticipating the fact that I'm going to stand before Him face to face someday. That's the way we should live. You see, we once were separated from God by our sin. 
And then he, he brought you into this relationship and he says, and now I'm going to call you a child of God. The creator of the heavens and the earth declaring that you're one of his children. Now, I have a great earthly father. But I'll tell you what, my heavenly father, I, I, I like that whole thing. The, the God that created the heavens and the earth that literally holds me in his hands, holds you in his hands. There's limitations to my earthly father. There is no limitation to our heavenly father. He holds you. He keeps you. He loves you. John says that we once were children of the devil. And now you're children of God. You see the contrast? Big contrast, isn't it? Children of the devil, children of God. Wow, that's quite the contrast. That's what he wants us to see. A big contrast between what you once were and what you are now. We once were children of darkness. And now we're what? Children of the light. Big contrast. We once were children of disobedience. And now we're children of obedience. We once were children of wrath. And now we're children of His love. Contrast. They're used all the way through Scripture so that we really can get it, what we're talking about here. The real change-up that's happened in our life. Thirteen times we're going to find in this letter that John makes reference to those who were born again as children of God. That's what he calls you when you've been born of God. He refers to you as children of God. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, having predestined us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Oh, so we're all adopted. We've all been adopted into the family of God. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have that same unity because of our relationship with Jesus Christ as a body of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God, according to Paul in Ephesians 1. It says that he did this according to his good pleasure of his will. Because God could do it. God had the power to do it. He simply did it. He made a way that you and I could become a child of God and He would adopt you into His family. And then He just says, to the praise and the glory and grace where which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. Wow. He just simply wanted to do it. And I gave my life to Him and He did a miracle and I was born again. I became a child of God and He predestined me, adopted me, and He says, now I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you is that guarantee that if you were to die, I'm going to raise your body up to be with me. The Holy Spirit of God that lives in you is the guarantee. When God makes a guarantee, it's not like one that you get from a retailer. 
When God makes a guarantee, it's going to be fulfilled. And that earnest guarantee is His Holy Spirit that lives inside of you when you're born again. John continues in verse 2. He says, And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know... What word do you think that word know is? It's oida. But we know or we have come to, to a full understanding of this. It's been revealed to us by God's Spirit in us that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. We should know this truth. You could ask yourself the question when I read that verse. Do I know that? Do I know that when He is revealed, or when I stand face to face with Him someday, that, we're, that I'm going to be like Him? It doesn't say that you're going to become a God, like some of the cults want to teach out there. You're going to be like Him. Uh, we're going to see Him as He is. You know, see, the Bible teaches that you are, and I as believers, uh, true Christians, that you're being transformed day by day into His image. How does that happen? By the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is transforming your mind and changing you from the inside out on a day-to-day basis. Little by little, little by little, He is changing you into the image of Jesus Christ. The only thing that hampers that or slows that work down is when we resist what God wants to do in us. If we submit to Him and humble ourselves and abide in Him and say, God, have your way in me, I think that process is sped up a little bit. Because see, God wants to change you into His image. But on that day when you stand before Jesus Christ, that's going to be the completion. You see, we've been justified, made right in the eyes of God when you got born again. But you've also been sanctified, set apart for His use the day you were born again. But He is sanctifying you day by day. But then there's one other word that you read in the book of Romans. That you're going to be glorified one day that's future you don't have your new body yet it's coming you're going to be housed in a new body you're going to stand in the presence of the Lord you're going to be face to face and this new body this glorified body you're going to be changed into the image of Christ that's the day we're all waiting for It's why we get up every day and say, Lord, just help me to live for you today. Just one day. That's all, you know, I know there's a whole lot of, a whole big week here, but God, can I just, today, if I could just live for you today, that would be enough. We should know this truth that when he's revealed, we're going to be like him. We should also have the confidence that Paul wrote about in Philippians 1.6. It's a verse that I've asked you as a church to memorize. 
Some of you have, some of you haven't. But Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He starts the work, the good work in you, and he finishes it on the day of Jesus Christ when you're transformed into his image. He says everything in between that, from the day you were born again to the day I return, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to accomplish. I'm going to set out. That word perform there actually in the Greek means to accomplish something. It means to undergo, accomplish, or make perfect. Wow. God has big plans for His children in eternity. That's our hope. You know what the word hope means, right? Confident expectation. It's not the hope of the world. Hope of the world just simply says, I I hope I win that lottery. I don't play the lottery. I hope I win the lottery when I scratch off that ticket. And in your mind, you're thinking, no way. Might happen. Chances of me winning that lottery are almost, they're nil. But if if I talk about the hope in Jesus Christ, I'm not talking in those terms. I'm talking with confident expectation. I'm waiting for that day to come to pass. That's the hope of a Christian. That's the hope that we are really enabled to have. We need to have strong confidence. I had a spider running across my nose. thought he ran down my arm. Paul writes in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. Now I've got all heebie-jeebies. It's about that big. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. It's probably under my pulpit here. I don't have arachophobia, but it's probably running around somewhere here. But... I got sidetracked. For now we see in a mirror dimly. What's that mean? To to walk up to a mirror. We like mirrors that are clear. Maybe. Maybe we like them dimly, you know, so we can't see everything. You know, the foggy mirror. And, but But for now we see dimly as Christians... What all this is going to be, what it's all going to look. But but then face to face, the Apostle Paul writes, face to face with who? And be face to face with the Lord. And it says, and now I know in part. I, in other words, I don't know everything. I, I I don't. I can't comprehend really what heaven's going to be like. What this new body, glorified body, is going to be like. What is going to be like to stand before the Lord someday? But when that day does come. It says, but then I shall know just as I also am known. He knows you completely. You're coming to know Him more and more as a believer. But on that day, He's going to open your understanding to see Him in all of His glory and everything about Him. You're going to have those blinders removed. That mirror is going to become clear. Now I see. Now I comprehend. 
And then in verse 3, and we'll close with this. Everyone who has this hope, there's the word. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. I guess we could ask ourselves the question, do you have this hope? I would say that if you're born again and you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you have it. If you don't have that hope this morning, that's a scary place to be in. Scary, as my perception of it anyway, is it's scary. And the reason I think it's scary is because I wouldn't want to stand face to face with the living God and not know that I'm right. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.